You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Jesus says that when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Heavenly Father, we do look to you, Father, and we pray that you'd be pleased to teach us this morning. We pray, Father, that you would be pleased to instruct us and that you would open our hearts to these words that are spoken by none other than Jesus himself, and that, Father, you would open your words to our hearts. Father, we pray these things in his precious name. Amen and amen. Now, For the last couple of weeks, we've been carefully looking at the subject of prayer, and two weeks ago, we spent a good bit of time, I think a good bit of time, uh, really just concerning ourselves with the approach to prayer, and it might have been something that we hadn't thought about before, um, because all that time was spent um, before we even say a word of prayer, isn't it? It's just simply in our approach. How do we approach God in prayer? and I think that's something that sometimes we don't even think about. We just rush headlong into prayer. Uh, and last week, we began to consider the actual uh, praying, the exercise of prayer, if you will. And we saw that two things are essential as we pray. One is that our hearts and minds must be engaged. And I think that's especially important when we come to the Lord's Prayer, because I think if there's any prayer that's ever been recorded where we might be found um, cruising along without our hearts engaged in kind of a mechanical way. It's when the re- Lord's Prayer is recited. Um, we know the words, um, but do we understand what they say? Do we understand what we're praying when we go through the various petitions? Recently, I taught a group of people through the Lord's Prayer and told them we have a preface, we have petitions, we have a conclusion. They never heard of such a thing. They had no idea. Uh, and as I began to open up to them just what we're praying for, with the, they, they'd been saying the Lord's Prayer all their lives and had no idea what they were saying once it began to be ex- explained to them, which meant that as they've said this prayer uh, all these years, there's a sense where there was a thoughtless uh, and mechanical thing going on, even though it wasn't intended. Um, so we, we have to be mindful uh, our hearts are to be engaged. Um, I think another place where this might happen, too, is when we're saying grace before meals. I know it's a struggle for me sometimes, especially if you're in a hurry and you're saying grace before meals. It's easy to go through the, you just say the thing you always say, and the next thing you know, wait a second. I mean, was I, was I, um, was I really engaged in that? And again, the approach, as we just take a moment and uh, we think about the approach and and we think about what we're doing, but most importantly, we think about who we're doing it with. Uh, we're, we have audience with the, the, the Holy One, uh, the sovereign creator of the universe. And last week, 
uh, we also took a look at uh, the fact that how we pray will reflect who we believe God is. How we pray is a reflection of who we believe God is. And we looked at an extreme example of that from 1 Kings 18 last week, namely from the way that the, the prophets of Baal were praying to Baal in their contest with Elijah. And we took a look at the way the, the Baal prophets were praying and the way they were carrying on and repeating these mantras and going on and on versus the way that Elijah prayed uh, to God. And there we see... Um, uh, we see this uh, principle. We're going to see it again when we come to Psalm 103 here in a little bit. But uh, who we believe God to be is going to, is going to uh, affect how we pray to him for sure. So it's really important that we're always growing in our knowledge of, of who God is. We're going to grow in our prayer life at the same time. Um, and as we grow in our prayer life, we're actually going to grow in our knowledge of him. These two things uh, handshake quite well. Uh, together Now, this morning we come to what is probably the most famous words in the whole sermon. And you'll remember just a little bit of housekeeping. A few weeks ago when I introduced the Sermon on the Mount, I shared with you that it's one of Jesus' talks. And um, we have a total of five talks in the Sermon on the Mount. This is the first one. And it's the most famous by far. Uh, you can still find people quoting it in our culture today. I gave some examples of conversations that I've had within the last month where people were quoting from the Sermon on the Mount. You know, when you simply say, turn the other cheek or do unto others that you would have them do unto you or judge not, uh, these are all coming from the Sermon on the Mount. It's still very well known uh, in our culture. We might not realize that's where it's coming from, uh, but um, it's coming from there. And I think probably two of the most famous words in the Sermon on the Mount have to be our Father. Um, I think most people know that one, don't they? Um, our Father. And in many ways, that is our entire sermon text this morning, is these two words, our Father. Some will say, what, you're going to preach on two words, our Father? Yeah, yes, our Father. It won't take too long to get over our, O-U-R. Uh, it'll take a few minutes to get through uh, Father. But let's begin with our. You know, when you look at verse 9 there, uh, you see the plurality of it, our. Um, our Lord doesn't teach us to say my father. I mean, think about that for a minute. It's jarring, isn't it? Um, when you pray, pray like this, my father. So let's say, well, that sounds, it sounds jarring, doesn't it? Uh, it's supposed to. Um, when you pray, pray like this, our father. Um, the old preachers used to say this is a joint prayer. When we pray our Father, I mean, it's, it's great for, for corporate worship, isn't it? Because we can all together, we can all say our Father. We can join in. Uh, whereas if someone stands up front and says my Father, well, then we're listening in, aren't we? We're listening in. But when we say our Father, uh, we're joining in. And it has this, uh, this corporate uh, pull, this corporate tug. It has this magnetism that pulls us together. But uh, that having been said, it's also... It's also amazing for private devotion as well um, because it pulls us out of the pocket of, of self-centeredness, doesn't it? When we say our Father, if we're thinking, if our minds and hearts are engaged, if we're not just saying our Father and moving on without putting any thought to it, but if we say our Father and our hearts and minds are engaged in this, well then, um, guess what? Um, this is not being done in isolation from the rest of our brothers and sisters, is it? As we say, our Father. In fact, it's reminding us. And we have 
uh, these sentiments throughout the prayer. If you just look through the prayer, you know, most of us probably have memorized it in the old King James translation. But if you look at your modern translations, you see, you know, verse 11, give us this daily bread. It doesn't say give me my daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread uh, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You see the constant plurality, the constant recognition of others as we um, go through the Lord's prayer. Uh, so it, it, the R coalesces with the us and the we, doesn't it? Um, the R coalesces well with the us and the we. Now, that's the R part and the father part. I want to take a look at this really under, to get started, really look under three different headings. First, just talk about fatherhood in general. Then we'll look at father of creation, if you will, and then father of adoption. Um, and as we think about fatherhood in general, um, fatherhood doesn't come to us in a vacuum. You know, I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about where does fatherhood come from? Um, it doesn't come in a vacuum. It, it, it's derivative. It's, it comes from the fact that God reveals himself to us as what? A father. A father. And uh, it's, it's a great, I mean, human fatherhood is a great gift, uh, especially when it's, when, it's, when it's done in a godly way. It's one of the, it's a great blessing. Uh, it doesn't come to us in a vacuum. And when human fatherhood is in step with scriptural fatherhood, or if, when human fatherhood is in step with uh, our Father who art in heaven, then it becomes an amazing te teaching vehicle, not just for those who live in the house, but for those who live nearby the house. Because there you see the fatherhood of God being radiated. It's the same thing with marriage. What is marriage supposed to reflect? It's supposed to reflect the love of Christ for his church, isn't it? And when you have a good marriage, a good, solid, biblical marriage, it's a reflection of that. It's a light, if you will, uh, of that love relationship and that covenantal faithfulness that Christ has with his church. And fatherhood is no different. And vice versa, the more we understand about divine fatherhood, the more we're going to know as fathers how to conduct ourselves uh, in the home. So you, you see, fatherhood in general is such a great, um, such a great gift. Now... Um, before we go any further, though, we need to make a distinction, and it's one that needs to be made. There, there's a sense in which God is father to everything by virtue of being its creator. Um, a couple of verses. You don't need to turn there. Just listen to Malachi 2.10. It says, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Uh, this fatherhood in the sense of creation in, in some pockets of fallen on hard times. There's some people that um, sometimes are so um, zealous to make this distinction that, you know, I, I've read articles where they practically dismiss that God is a father in this sense at all, and we must push back against that. We need to make the distinction I'm about to make, but um, we have some verses in here where God does, you know, he is making the case uh, where there's a sense where he is father to all that he has made. 
And Malachi 2.10 would be a, a verse that we would look at. And someone will say, well, Rick, yeah, okay, Malachi 2.10, but there God is speaking to his covenant people in Malachi 2.10. Okay, fair enough. What about Acts 17.28? Because there uh, Paul is speaking to the Athenians and not the covenant people of God. He's speaking to those in Athens. And he says, in him, that is in God, we live and move and have our own being or our being, even as some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. And if you're not familiar with that, read Acts 17 this afternoon at your leisure. And there you'll see Paul is making the case that there's this sense where God is a father uh, by virtue of creating. Um, he's a father to all. If you look at ch verse 45 of chapter 5 of Matthew, uh, Matthew 5, that is, 545, um, there are very well-known passages there. For we're told that he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. You know, you sometimes maybe quote that verse, you know, that verse. Um, you know, two people have, two neighbors have a garden in their backyard. One neighbor loves the Lord and serves him faithfully. The other neighbor is walking in unbelief. Both gardens are getting the same rain. Both gardens are getting the same sunshine. Both gardens are growing. Uh, and this is, a, uh, in this sense, God is providing. And that is one of the um, uh, essential roles of the Father, isn't it, is to provide. Um, he's providing. Now, with all of this being said, we do need to make a distinction. And um, I, I wish that we didn't have to spend this much time on this. And in times when the church, if you survey history, in times when the church was much more healthy, these kinds of distinctions didn't need to be made because it was clear to everybody. But we live in a day right now where these distinctions have blurred almost to the point where they're, they're not even present anymore. Uh, I've been confronted with this, um, especially this summer, I've been confronted with this time and time again. Um, this idea of uh, God being a father in the adoptive sense is relatively unknown. Um, and I'm not speaking outside the church right now. I'm speaking inside the church. As I've talked with people who are in ministry that should have these distinctions very clear in their minds, it's, it's um, very obvious to me that they don't. And if it's not, in, if it's not clear in the pulpit, it's not going to be clear anywhere else, is it? Um, it's not going to be clear anywhere else. That's, that's for sure. Now, what am I talking about? Well, it's vital that we see that the fatherhood that's used in our text here is not the general fatherhood in the sense of creator. Um, and that, that, I mean, that, that, that's become so blurred uh, that it, it almost can be a shocking statement to somebody um, if you've never heard it before. I mean, the fatherhood of our text is an adopted fatherhood. If you, if you look at the beginning of the sermon, if you go back to chapter 5 and verse 1, you know, seeing the crowds, Jesus goes up on the hillside. He goes up on the mountain. He sits down. His disciples come to him. He opens his mouth, and he teaches them. And here we find Jesus. Uh, his primary audience is his disciples, while the crowds are listening in, and, and clearly Jesus intends to teach both his disciples and the crowds. He, he intends to teach them both. But, um, he, uh, you know, he, um, he, he's certainly addressing as his primary audience his disciples. Uh, there's no question about that. Now, 
in the last couple, over the last couple of weeks and on a couple of the last Wednesdays, I've been making the case that we can apply the Sermon on the Mount in two ways. The first way, does anybody remember? The first way is, you know, the way we'd apply the law, right? The Ten Commandments, um, it convicts us of sin. And I, I'm a living testimony to that use of the Sermon on the Mount. I, I've shared with you early on, I can remember Tammy and I were just talking about this this morning, you know, when I was trying to figure out the gospel, hearing about the gospel and trying to figure out the gospel and asking so many people, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? And getting so many different answers. And I didn't know what the gospel was at that time, but I was asking and what I did know enough, I knew that I should be getting something like the same answer each time. And I was getting all these conflicting answers. So I just began to study the word. I just began to, to study the Bible. And one of the things that really confronted me was the Ten Commandments. Um, the Ten Commandments just deeply convicted me of sin, but it still left a bit of life in me. I thought I was doing okay. I, I, I blew eight of them, but I got two of them okay. I'm doing all right. And I've shared that with you. I mean, I was proud of my 20% score until I got on the Sermon on the Mount. And when I got to the Sermon on the Mount, I discovered that, I've, that I have not kept any of the commandments. And, and it was really the, the Sermon on the Mount that was the coffin stone or the coffin nail, the final coffin nail to the old way of life, um, where God convicted me of my sins and showed me my need of Jesus. And no one really understands their need for Jesus until that takes place. But we, don't need, we don't just need Jesus to help us through a bad day or through a rainy season. We need Jesus more than we need the air we're breathing, actually. We, we need him more than we need anything. And folks don't understand that because we skip these steps. But... Um, uh, having been convicted of sin, I knew I needed Jesus. Now, I want to take this a little bit further, this application. I want to go a little bit further with this because we need to go a little further. And I'm going to use again, drawing on Martin Lloyd-Jones' words. He writes this concerning the Sermon on the Mount. He says, what is of supreme importance is that we must always remember that the Sermon on the Mount is a description of character and not a code of ethics or of morals. Now, let's, I'm, I'm going to reread that, and I want to let that soak in just for a moment. As we're thinking about how to apply the Sermon on the Mount, that's Matthew 5 through 7, as we think about how to apply that, I've, I've said we can apply it as the law, it convicts us of our sins. Um, it's also, you know, it applies to uh, believers, if you will. It applies to children of God, if you will. But we're taking the second application a little bit further. And in the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says, what is of supreme importance is that we must always remember that the Sermon on the Mount is a description of character. Do you hear that? A description of character and not a code of ethics or of morals. It's not to be regarded as law, a kind of new Ten Commandments, or a set of rules and regulations which are to be carried out by us, but rather a description of what we Christians are meant to be. Now, that is monumental, not only in understanding the Sermon on the Mount, but in applying the Sermon on the Mount. Um, you know, our, the focus of our study right now is really not an exposition of the Sermon on the Mount. We're studying the Sermon on the Mount in order to learn about what Jesus is teaching in prayer. But his words are in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. And therefore, we need, you know, when, when you go to Scripture, our tendency 
is to look at all of the details and not look at the whole. And if you look at all of the details and you don't look at the whole, that's, that's how we get into trouble almost every time. We have to look at the whole and get an idea of the whole before we look at the details. And uh, this is what we're doing. As we look at the whole here, what is the Sermon on the Mount? It's a description of character. It's a description of character. Um, and what, what he is saying, and if you look at chapter 5 there, uh, it, it's, it, the, 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 the child of God is now, once uh, uh, he is converted, if you will, he or she is to be described as poor in spirit, for example, out of verse 3. Um, mourning for sin, verse 4. Uh, meekness, verse 5. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness, verse 6. Uh, merciful, verse 7. Pure in heart, verse 8. Peacemaking, um, obviously will be persecuted uh, for righteousness' sake. And if you look at verse 11, verse 11 is a really concrete, um, this, this gives us something to really stand on here. Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. Who is the you here? The you here are those who are being described this way in distinction from the rest of the world. And he says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. See, that, that doesn't describe the rest of the world, does it? The world isn't persecuting the world. The world's persecuting the believer. And it's a certain type of believer that's being persecuted. Um, who is antecedent to my, in verse 11? It's not Buddha, it's not Muhammad, it's Jesus. So it's, it's saying, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on Jesus' account. Now, who's going to be persecuted on Jesus' account? It's going to be the one who's following Jesus. That is the you that Jesus is making reference here, you see. Uh, that is the you so um, it's, not, it's not on Buddha's account, it's not on Muhammad's account, it's on Jesus' account. Now, this isn't the way that things have always been. If you keep your place in Matthew 6 and you turn to Ephesians chapter 2, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, and we look at this passage often, Ephesians 2, And again, I want to remind uh, us of the context of Ephesians. In chapter 1, Paul is writing to the saints who are in Ephesus. That is, the believers in Ephesus. This isn't just a group of super Christians. It's, the, it's everybody who believes in Ephesus and through them, um, all believers that Paul is speaking to. And in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, you, who is the you? Well, the you are the believe, it's the believing body that Paul is writing to, and through them, it's all believers in every age. That's who the you is. And Paul says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And what's Paul saying here? What's he saying? He's saying, okay, you weren't always described by the Sermon on the Mount. That wasn't always you. That wasn't always me either. Because once upon a time, we were described by something else. We were described as sons of disobedience. 
among whom we all once walked, verse 3, and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature. See, there's another reference to children. Children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So once upon a time, this group of people were committed to an entirely different principle than they are committed to presently. Um, and to use the words of Jesus in John 8, um, they, Jesus uses the word sons of the devil. Uh, when you, we've, we've strayed so far that when you start speaking this way, you start to sound like a flashback from the past somewhere. But God's word hasn't changed. This is the message that we really have to take forward. Um, we really must take this forward. Now, if you continue in Ephesians 2, if you look at verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, he says, and raised up with him and, seed, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, this is the one and the only one who can be the you and the Sermon on the Mount. You know, something has happened to this person. Something has happened to him. Something has happened to her. And we're told that this something is a supernatural something. We're told in Ephesians chapter 4 that God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, in verse 5, we're told that there's a sense in which their souls have been resurrected. Their souls were dead. They were spiritually dead. Not, not wounded mortally. The word that Paul is using there, does it, it means dead. It's the Greek word nekros. It means dead. They were spiritually dead. But something has happened. Something wonderful has happened. Something supernatural has happened to these people. God has raised them. He has raised their souls. He has made them alive together with Christ, verse 5. And in verse 6, they've been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. Um, we could put it another way. He or she is the one who is in Christ. If you look at Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, what? You see this phrase, in Christ? If you read your New Testament, you'll find this phrase, in Christ, over and over and over and over again. This idea of being in Christ. How do you become in Christ? By a faith union. The moment you put your faith and trust in Christ savingly, you're brought in Christ. You are united to Christ in this way. But look what verse 3 says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with a couple of spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Is that what it says? No. It says every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Not a couple of them. Everyone. And of these blessings is the character described in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I'm not talking about how we actually act. I'm talking about how we're meant to act. <laughs> There's a big difference. But we're, we're one, of the, one, of the, one of the great hurdles of getting over how we're meant to act is understanding how we can act and how we should act. 
because of this something that has been done to us. Uh, this something, this, this work, if you will, this great work uh, that we, 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 we call it being born again. We call it being born above. We call it uh, regeneration, if you will. You can call it, um, you know, on the human side, you could call it conversion. You can call it whatever you like, but it's a supernatural work that has been done to the believer, if you will. Uh, and it is uh, he or she and he or she only that can be described uh, back in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you go back to Matthew chapter 6 and you look at the use there, if you look at verse 5, uh, when Jesus says, when you pray, who is the you? Who's he talking to? He's, he's talking to the believers. Here, he's talking to those who have been brought into a faith union with Christ Jesus. This is who this is ultimately addressing. And it is them, in this adoptive sense, that are called in verse 9 to pray like this. Our Father. Our Father. Um, what, this, what I'm saying is the same thing that John teaches us in John 1, 11 to 13. I mean, let's turn there just for a moment. John chapter 1, uh, verses um, 11, 12, and 13. John chapter 1, pretty well-known passages here. It's good to be reminded of them. Um, here Jesus comes to his own in verse 11. But something's wrong. His own people didn't receive him. Verse 12, but all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to what? To become children. That's an odd thing to say if everybody's already a child, isn't it? That's why nobody feels like they need to do anything because they're already in. They don't need to do anything. Uh, to listen to the modern gospel, you really don't need to do anything because uh, you're already in. But you see, there's a very clear distinction here. Jesus came to his own as people do not receive him, but to all did receive him who believed in his name. To these and these only was given a priceless privilege, the privilege of becoming children of God. And um, these, again, this mysterious work, Jesus speaks of it in verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of the man, but of God. You see, there's something different about these people. They didn't do this to themselves. We don't have the ability to do this to ourselves. This was done to them by God's gracious and sovereign hands. So um, this is the one and the only one who can call God his or her father in this adoptive sense. And this is the, the sense in which Jesus is speaking of here in the Lord's Prayer. I mean, the Bible only knows of two types of people. It only speaks of two types of people, the sons of God, the sons of disobedience, uh, those who call in the name of the Lord, those who don't, uh, the people of God in the world, or the sheep and the goats. And you can go through and find all these various metaphors, but there's only two. There's only two. Uh, there's only two types. So if anyone is Christ this morning, if you're in Christ this morning, you should start right now with these two words. You should start to be feeling some humble worship taking place in your life. 
If you are in Christ this morning, you can say, Our Father. I could put it this way, perhaps. Um, if my neighbor was in Christ, my next door neighbor is in Christ, and he and his family are faithful followers of Jesus, they believe and they love Jesus. And um, I do not. I am still walking in unbelief. And we find ourselves together somewhere, and somebody leads us in the Lord's Prayer. As the words, Our Father, are sounded, I say those two words with my believing neighbors. I say, Our Father. But they're actually, they're in the right to say it. They have the right to say it. But I am presuming to say it. I am saying it in utter presumption. In fact, I'm, invest, I'm inviting myself into a family gathering that I don't belong in when I say our Father, because he's not my Father in this sense, because I'm still on the outside. You see what I'm talking about here? Something. I, I need to do something before I can call on him as my Father. I, I need to do something. What do I need? Well, I, 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 need to, I, I need to repent of my sins, and I need to put my faith and trust in Christ Jesus, you see. Uh, and, and I will do that as God um, works in my heart and works in my life. Um, but you see, there's a, you see the distinction. We've got to see the distinction. Uh, we've got to quit treating those words like they're being used in the creation of sense. They're being used in the adoptive sense. Do you understand what I'm saying here? Jesus tells a, a parable about a wedding banquet, and there's, there's a man who's found in the wedding banquet who doesn't have the clothes, right? He doesn't have the appropriate attire. And, and what, what happens to him? He's cast out uh, into darkness. Why did Jesus teach us these things? To make these distinctions. Uh, to make these distinctions. These distinctions are distinctions that we need to know. Now, that's the rugged stuff. Let's get on with the good stuff. I always like to save the good stuff for last. Um, if um, maybe, maybe I should put more good stuff in at the beginning to keep everybody from um, ch checking out. But um, the last line is the blessings of having God as our Father. And that's why we were going to Psalm 103. As I was surveying the Bible this week, looking for maybe one place where we could just find a smorgasbord, just a feast, if you will, of this subject that would do a couple of things for us. One, it would show us that your prayer life is going to be reflective of who you believe God is. Remember that. You're, how you believe God, what, what you believe about God is affecting your prayer life, whether you realize it or not. It always will. And uh, we'll find the psalmist everywhere. We'll find that principle everywhere where we find prayer. We're going to see that all over the place. And notice how David, this psalm is addressed to David. And it, it starts out with these famous words, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. That's Psalm 103, if you're, in case you're looking. Psalm 103. Um, bless the Lord, all my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, all my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Now, see, this blessing and this praise isn't going on in a vacuum like a song that might say, holy, 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 and that'd be the only words in it. Uh, where that's largely in a, in, in, in a vacuum or a, a song that might have a high um, stanza of praise but doesn't offer any reason for praise. Uh, there's, there's fodder given to us uh, for praise in this great song. First of all, for his holy name. 
David is saying, bless, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. But in verse 2, his benefits. His benefits. Now, if you look down to verse 13, and there are many who say that there are no vestiges of fatherhood and part of God in the Old Testament. And some of the scholars that say that and write that are very esteemed. They've forgotten more than I'm going to live to know. But I must say I have to disagree with them on this because if you look at verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Now, what's David doing here? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's calling on fatherhood in general. That's where we started, isn't it? I said I wanted to look at fatherhood in three ways. One of the reasons I wanted to do that is because it comes up here, doesn't it? Fatherhood in general. It's derived. We get this fatherhood from God. He reveals himself to us as a father. And if we've been blessed to grow up in a good home where we had good fathers, I mean, some of us have not had that blessing, and it's, it makes it rough. But when fatherhood is reflective of the biblical fatherhood that God displays, then we, then we get to understand we're in a school just by virtual being in the home. We're in a university 24-7 learning what this fatherhood is. And David is using this. David is using, he says, the father shows compassion. Okay, many of you are going to relate with that. You're going to relate with that. You see, as a father shows compassion to his children, so does the Lord. You see, there's this implied comparison being made between a human father and, a, and God is divine father. But there's a distinction being made there. You see the distinction? He shows compassion not to all by whom he's created, but he's showing compassion to those who fear him. Now, don't misunderstand me. God shows compassion to all he's created. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike, doesn't he? That's the creative sense. But it is intensified in the adoptive sense. Again, this, to many who have never heard this before, this might sound like, you know, the nails down the chalkboard or the fork across the plate. Oh, you had to bring that up, didn't you, Rick? What did you bring that up for? But um, please don't check out on me here. Um, start reading the Word with an eye to this distinction, and you're going to see it not in a couple of places. You're going to see it all through the Scriptures. And why is it there? Is God wanting to be mean? No, God is calling everyone to the other side. He desires that no one perish, that all come to, to eternal life, doesn't he? Well, we need to know what we need to flee from before we'll flee from anything, right? We need to know what we're going to flee from. Look at the blessings here, though. Uh, look at the blessings of the Father. The, these blessings, by the way, are blessings that are only received in this adoptive sense. When you look at the blessings, you'll be forced to agree with that. Because in verse 3, he forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases. Is God going to forgive everyone? I mean, we're going to fall into like a universalism where God, you know, I understand why so many people want to believe in universalism. I wish I could believe in it too. I can't because the Bible doesn't teach it. But I really wish it's the way it was. Ah, the more I learn about heaven, the more you learn about hell. The more you learn about the joys and glories of heaven, the more you learn about the opposite, don't you? 
I'm going to tell you something. I'm really afraid of hell. I am really afraid of that place. I had a professor say that years and years and years ago. And it just, I remember when he said it, I hadn't really thought about it. But I remember him saying, I am afraid of that place. And I hadn't really thought about it. And ever since then, I've, I've, I've known just a, 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 a greater fear of, of, of passing from this life into the next without Christ. So there's no fear of that today. But, but looky here. Who forgives all your iniquity? This is what our Father does. He forgives all your iniquity. Verse 4, he redeems your life from the pit. There's redemption. So we have forgiveness and healing. We have redemption in verse 4. He satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Here we have renewal. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Here we have, here we have uh, uh, justice for the oppressed, if you will. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. That's his, he's revealing his ways, if you will. In verse 8, he's merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. Here we have mercy, grace, and patience, don't we? Mercy, grace, and patience. And if you look at verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And verse 17, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to the children's children to keep to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Again, you see there's a distinction being made there, isn't there? You see this distinction I'm talking about? You're going to see it everywhere. It's everywhere. And here we have uh, his covenant love. Um, generally, it's translated steadfast love. I, I, it can be translated covenant love, hesed. Uh, I think our last song is hesed, isn't it, Tom? Hesed. What is hesed? It's a Hebrew word for love. And it, it speaks of God's faithful love, his covenant faithful uh, love, if you will. And in verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. There we see kingship. You know, in my pastoral prayer this morning, you know, look, there's so many people today are so anxious about everything. And you can understand that, can't you? I mean, especially if you spend a lot of time watching the news. Don't spend too much time watching the news, please. Don't do that. <laughs> It'll make you really anxious. Um, if, we, if, if we don't have a solid conviction that Jesus is in control, then I get it. You know, I really get it. And, and that's where so many people are at, aren't they? Um, and, you know, your, your heart just wants to go out. Of, I, I, you know, our family has a friend who I don't think has gone out of his house since COVID started. I don't think he's hardly left his house in 19 months. Scared to death. You know? You just want to weep, don't you, for that? But if you can say our father this morning in this adoptive sense, I mean, have you, have you, have you seen Jesus, not with your eyes? Have you tasted and touched, to use uh, the psalmist's words, have you tasted to see that the Lord is good? Or have your eyes been opened to the beauty and splendor and majesty of Christ? Do you see the truth of his word? Do you see the truth of his gospel? Have you embraced him? Uh, if you have, then Jesus is telling 
you and he's telling me to pray our Father. And what a priceless privilege that is to be able to say our Father. And my challenge this week is to process that. We've said those words many times, every one of us. We've said our Father many, many times. But have we ever processed what we're saying? Have we ever truly processed our Father? You know, in the South, they have a saying. I don't know if they use it so much anymore, but there's a saying in the South that goes something like this. Do you know who my daddy is? Do you know who my daddy is? If you're in Christ this morning, do you know who your daddy is? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we so thank you. We once were walking in darkness, and we were in such darkness, we didn't know we were in darkness. We thought we had it all figured out. So you opened up our eyes and showed us reality, at least the beginning of reality. And you showed us a beauty, a beauty that is unsurpassed by anything, the beauty of Christ Jesus, you yourself walking in human flesh. And then our hearts were changed forevermore. Something happened to us. What happened? We, can't, we, we don't know the, all the details. We were born above, born from above. We were born again. We were regenerate. Our hearts were, we were sprinkled. You, you put a new principle in our lives. You extracted us from, the citizens, from citizenship of this world, and you brought us into citizenship of your kingdom. We no longer belong to this world. Our father is no longer the devil. You are our father. Well, Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning and says, well, I don't know what any of this is. I don't know what he's talking about. Father, there's an indication there that this has not happened. Father, I pray you'll get a hold of that soul. Get a hold of that person. Whether they listen here this morning or they listen online, however they're listening. Get a hold of them, O oh Father. And just give them a glance. All it takes is just a glance, a glance of Jesus' beauty, a glance of his splendor and majesty. For as we see him, he tells us, if we've seen him, we've seen you, O oh Father. And that they can be transformed and brought into this state where now they can say, and they can follow Jesus and say, Our Father, our Father who art in heaven. You're not on earth, you're in heaven. But the heavens cannot even contain you. Oh, Lord, what a, what a priceless privilege it is to be able to say those two words this morning. And I pray, Father, that we'll never say those two words flippantly again or mechanically or without any thought. Oh, Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.